Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History. I'm your host, Matt McLaughlin, and uh, look, I know it's been a long time between drinks. It's been a long time since I've done an episode of this podcast, but for very good reason. Basically, we're reshaping the podcast. We're getting lots of good new content together. And actually, I'm on an extended trip in the UK. I'm here for four or five months, and I don't know what you'd call it, a history adventure, but I'm over here doing lots of great history stuff, generating lots of great history content, and I'll be bringing that to you in the coming weeks and months on the podcast. So it's super exciting. So look out for some really substantial changes to the podcast. It's going to be great going forward for the rest of the year. So this is the first of some exciting new episodes and a bit of a bit of a special one because I've spent the weekend at uh, at the We Have Ways Festival, and if you don't know what that is, it's the largest World War II festival in the UK. It's based on the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast, which is hosted by James Holland and Al Murray. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, I absolutely recommend you go and check it out. Um, I'm not associated in any way with the podcast. I'm just a fan, and they do a great job talking about all things to do with World War II. Um, and as part of that, James and Al host every year the festival, We Have Ways Festival, which is about all things World War II. And this year's festival went for the weekend uh, of, of September 8, and it was all about the the year 1943, so 80 years ago and everything that was going on in 1943, and it was just a brilliant weekend. I had the privilege of speaking about Guadalcanal in 1943, and I'll be bringing you the, um, the, 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 the audio from that discussion uh, later on, but um, it was a great, uh, a great experience to talk with the fantastic American historian John McManus, who, uh, who is very well known and is an absolute font of knowledge about everything to do with America's involvement in the Second World War. So really a great honour to sit down with John and, and talk all about Guadalcanal in 1943 and the army actions that get a little bit overlooked in favour of the marine actions that took place in 1942. So that was that was my small contribution to the to the weekend. But for the rest of the time, I just had a wonderful time walking around, attending seminars, seeing tanks driving about the place, listening to artillery firing, a lot of reenactors who aren't just dressing up and playing soldiers. These are people who are absolute experts on their topic. And so they, they it's actually really good. I wasn't sure what to think about reenactors in the past, but having met and spoken to quite a lot of them now, I see what they're doing. They're bringing history to life. They call it living history. I mean, it's there's a connection to this podcast loosely because they, they call what they do living history. Uh, but it basically means not only are they showing you the weapons, the equipment, the uniforms, the vehicles of that era, 
but they are absolute experts about the units that they're representing. So you can go and talk to them about, okay, what were these men and women doing at this time? What, uh, you know, what, what was their role during the war? How, how were they affected by what was going on around them? And um, so it was really, really fascinating to talk to some of those people as well. There were great booksellers there. Cole's Books from, uh, from um, Oxfordshire were there selling a whole range of books. But most importantly, it was great to speak to other historians. I, you know, I met some fabulous historians, some that I knew and some that I was meeting for the first time. And I do have to say that over a cold beer at the end of a day, chatting with those historians was probably the highlight of the weekend. So next year, I assume it'll be on at about the same time. Dates have not been released, but I assume it'll be about the same time, September next year, in the UK in uh, in near Silverstone Racetrack, so only an hour and a half out of London. Um, a fabulous weekend, and I'd recommend, if you can, you attend the We Have Ways Festival. And what I wanted to do today is just give you a bit more of a breakdown of my thoughts about what happened over the weekend. I'm bringing you a couple of short little interviews I did with uh, some historians who had some particularly interesting discussions during the weekend. So it's basically my overview. While it's still fresh in my mind, the uh, the excitement of the weekend, uh, my overview of uh, of everything that went on. So I've got in front of me my program from from the weekend. Um, and let's let's start with a map. We've got a map here showing everything that uh, that was available. And this will give you an idea of the the sorts of things that were going on. So there were three. Uh, three tents where um, discussions were being held. So these were either presentations from individual historians on various topics, and we'll get into those in a minute, um, or they could be a panel session where a number of historians were discussing a topic um, or just a question and answer session or just a one-on-one discussion with a, between a couple of historians about some pretty interesting topics, which we'll get to uh, in a minute. We'll talk about uh, some more of those in detail. Marked here on the map is Arena Action um, and a, a symbol showing a tank. And there were there was lots of hardware there. If you're someone who loves seeing World War II hardware, and let's be honest, who doesn't? It's amazing. Let's, it brings out the big kid in all of us. This was incredible. So a whole range of, of tanks. Probably my favorite was the Sherman, um, but not just tanks on display, but these tanks were in working condition as well. So several times during the weekend. And, and go and check out my social medias because I posted uh, images of this several times during the weekend. The tanks would fire up and go tearing around the around a field. And it was a, you know, again, I don't want to nerd out too much, but it was quite an extraordinary experience to see these World War II tanks, original World War II tanks, and just to hear the noise and the smoke coming out of them. I know that anyone who's been down to the tank museum in Bovington here in the UK will appreciate how spectacular it is when tanks fire up. I've been lucky to see World War One tank in action and World War Two tanks a few times, but this was great to see half a dozen tanks all at once. And it did give you that impression of what it was like when a, a tank squadron was on the move uh, during the Second World War. So that was really quite exciting. And there were artillery pieces as well, which were regularly firing blanks. It was one of the odd things about the uh, the weekend was every now and again, you'd be just going about your business, forgetting that you, uh, you know, just, just imagining yourself in the 21st century as we all do. And all of a sudden you'd hear machine gun fire tearing Tearing through from a foreign field as the <laughs> far off field as the uh, as the reenactors did their thing with blanks, so you'd hear artillery guns firing and sometimes the guns firing together in sequence. It was really, uh, really quite spectacular. So um, again, there's uh, there's. I'll, in fact, I might even I might even put that up now. Let's cut now to the audio of a night firing exercise that I saw that really sent the hairs up on the back of your neck. <laughs> Yeah, 
was a pretty extraordinary experience, the night firing. So um, there's some video of that on my socials, so check that out as well. You can see exactly what I was talking about. But back to the event, Le Parachutists were a group of, again, reenactors dressed up in all the gear. And gee, they do a great job. It's incredible the amount of gear they go to. But also um, Cole's Books, as we mentioned, do a great job. Check out Cole's Books if you want to, if you want to access some really fantastic military books. Um, but the other thing I thought was interesting is there were a lot of just good little booths around there. And I, I love a bit of a rummage through a, a militaria display or, you know, they had some, some really great ones there. My friends from Bletchley Park, I did, I made a documentary there. Check it out on YouTube. Uh, in 2019, I think that was all about the Enigma machine. I went out to Bletchley Park and the, the great team there showed me around. And it was great to see they had a display uh, set up at the We Have Ways Festival to talk all about the great things that are happening at Bletchley Park. And one of the things that I strongly recommend when you come to London, if you're interested in World War II history, get out to Bletchley Park. It's a pretty easy train ride just slightly out of London. And it is absolutely fantastic. Admission is pretty reasonable. They take you all around and show you just all the buildings where all the code breaking occurred and Alan Turing and everything else we've heard about. And, of course, original Enigma machines that are part of their collection. So they had a replica Enigma machine here on display at the festival. So, again, just a great way, particularly with young people. I was surprised by the number of young people that were there. And it's really important that we keep them engaged in the history of the Second World War. Obviously, we're getting quite removed from that history now, 80 years down the track. And it was really great to see young people attending the festival. And one of the great things they could do was come out and uh, and play with a, a replica Enigma machine. So it was just very well done from my friends at Bletchley Park. So keep up the good work. Hopefully we'll be able to film another documentary out there very soon to, to really a part two of that series. But if you haven't seen it, go back and check out my documentary on YouTube about uh, using an original Enigma machine from the Second World War. It was uh, really exciting. but So that was the basic layout. It was a very big site. Lots of camping. Most people that came out there camped. Um, huge campground. There was glamping as well for the, uh, for the, for the people that wanted a little more comfort. Um, and just a you know, magnificent weekend. It was hot, uh, unexpectedly warm. <laughs> just great weather uh, and great people. And I really enjoyed, if you're listening to this and you were someone that came up and chatted to me, um, thank you for coming out and, and finding me. And, and I had a chat to a lot of great listeners to the podcast and people who watch the videos and read my books. And I always love um, chatting to people about the work that I'm doing. To be honest, I would do this just for myself because it's uh, it's such great fun and I, I always have something to say. Um, but it's uh, fantastic to actually uh, get out and talk to people and, and people that are listening to what I'm doing and people who enjoy it. So thank you. If you came up and chatted to me, um, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you out again. Uh, pro- probably next year's festival. Hopefully I'll be back. I look forward to seeing you then. Um, but let's talk about some of the great presentations that were done. So probably the only thing I'd say as a criticism, and it's it's not really a criticism, is that there was just so much great content on, it was difficult to work out what to go and see half the time. Because there was so much great content, often it was all occurring at the same time. So you had to pick and choose which one you went to. So as I said, a good problem to have, but uh, I, I did miss out on seeing some presentations I wanted to because I did have to pick and choose. At times, but just just some of the ones I I wanted to highlight. So, uh, on the first day, Atlantic 1943, smashing the wolf packs. That was a great presentation about the the war in the Atlantic, the secret war with Helen Fry and Claire Mully. Um, I do want to say there was a, a large number of very talented female historians there, uh, and it was really great to see because there are so many great historians out there of both genders. But it's great to see that it is what in a you know traditionally been quite a boys' club, the area of military history. There are so many brilliant. Um, female historians doing wonderful things. So it was great to see them in action. Some really great presentations. Um, Alina uh, Nabaliska 
did uh, a, a quite a harrowing presentation on uh, an operation called uh, AB Action, which took place in Poland during the Second World War, and it was basically systematic extermination of, of uh, the intelligentsia in Poland. And Alina is a, a brilliant historian, uh, particularly of the, the, her speciality, the Polish um, struggles during the war and, uh, and the situation in Poland during the war. So that was, uh, that was great to see. Um, one of the key addresses of the day was uh, Stalingrad with Sir Anthony Beaver uh, talking to James Holland. And that book on Stalingrad that Sir Anthony Beaver wrote uh, many years ago now is one of the all-time classics. So if you haven't read Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver, um, certainly go and check it out. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't see that presentation because I was busy doing my own presentation, uh, which was Guadalcanal uh, 1943 with uh, with John McManus. So we were on at the same time. So I didn't get to see Anthony Beaver's uh, presentation, but I did get to chat to him briefly about it. And he's um, he's a man who knows his stuff. So it was uh, great to catch up with him. Um what else? What are these? Some of these other ones I want to highlight. Oh, this was an excellent one. This was there's a there's a, a wonderful guy called Paul Woodage, uh, Woody as we know him, who um, you may have seen him on uh, World War Two TV is his channel on YouTube, and he does a lot of great stuff. He did a fascinating presentation about D Day tourism and about how tourism to D Day has changed over the years, and he wasn't afraid to say it as he saw it, which is that a lot of the people who come to see D Day now. Uh, potentially not doing it in the right way. They're coming to potentially tick it off a bucket list or because, to use his term, it's obligation tourism. Um, and he's not saying that deri- derisively against these people. He's saying that it's that people feel they have to go um, and therefore they perhaps don't feel enough of a connection with it as they might have in previous generations. But millions, literally millions of people are now going to the D-Day battlefields and a lot of them are coming potentially not with their head in the right place about why they're going there. And why don't we cut now? I had a chat to Paul after his chat, uh, after his chat just talking about D-Day and the, and the evolution of tourism in the area. So let's uh, let's hear from Paul now uh, about uh, about D-Day tourism and the excellent presentation that he did on that subject. Paul Woodage, uh, D-Day historian, battlefield guide. You did a fantastic discussion yesterday about uh, D-Day and the types of tourists that are coming. Um I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now. What's it, what's it like in 2023 to be a D-Day battlefield guide? It's, I mean, I'm doing less guiding myself, but my partner's still guiding. I do 25 days a year, whereas I used to do 120 days a year or something. But it's, it's harder. We feel that the glory years are in the past, the, the days when people would come armed with huge amounts of information and interest and deep connections. They've, they've kind of gone now, and... So the subject of my talk yesterday here was what I call obligation tourism, which Australia, Gallipoli, there's a sense of you understanding that. And people, if you're an American, how can you come to France and not do the D-Day beaches? So we're dealing with people who aren't necessarily going to be going and reading a book about it afterwards or be investing it beyond the length of time they're committing. So you, as a guide, you have to just relax, drop your expectation a little bit except the fact that they're paying you they're, they're they want to do this but they're not wanting to do it the level that would perhaps reach our satisfaction as well so you know my, one of my friends in the ardennes is amazed how basic sometimes we have to start it you know this is eisenhower uh, he was leading uh, the germans held this bit whereas in the ardennes you go to the ardennes you've already heavily invested in the choice to go to the ardennes so you're going to be familiar with the campaign on a broad level so then you can go into the micro, well, 3rd Battalion, we're over behind that wood and 2nd Battalion, we're over there. So we don't get that so much in Normandy these days. So it's, and it's just busy. 
It normally has five million visitors a year to it to see the battlefields. And the, the issue, I was going to say problem then, but problem is being, being more negative, and I'm trying hard not to be too middle-aged and grumpy, is that they aren't spreading around over the variety of sites. It's Pegasus Bridge, Santa Mary Glees, Point du Hoc, Omaha Beach. are just getting busier and busier and busier, but you can go to a place just a mile away from one of those sites and the number of people there drops dramatically and uh, it, it's, they're doing the safe way round it's the, the, this site, this site, this site, this site so it's different it's, uh, you know, I've been, in the 20 years I've been guiding it has changed progressively and a bit more commercial uh, I think as well there's a, uh, if we use the word superficial which seems to be a bit of a plague in many aspects of life these days there's an argument that some people make that if you bring someone to a topic so if they see a movie or play a video game or read a fairly populist history as long as it engages them in the topic it brings people to the topic that's a good thing I'm not quite convinced of that but where do you stand on that idea as it relates to people coming to Normandy you're somewhere somewhere between the two points of view I think you know you but but then that's like casting a wide net hoping to catch one fish you know, th- th- thinking oh okay I took 200 people on tours this year maybe that one person is going to read another book that's putting a positive spin on something that is ultimately negative I think but sometimes you, it's, the, it's the, the focusing on the person the tour you pick your battles in a sense you know there's a great friend of mine in America called Liberty brings over 12 year olds on battlefield experiences and they've had to earn the right to come they have to help fundraise their own trip and She's not trying to explain to them the minute of how did the British uh, progress towards cost. She's sowing seeds that will just sort of germinate there and maybe three or four years later when they hit 15, 16, the fact they've stood at a cemetery and they perhaps... And she does a very international tour, even though it's from America. She'll take people and talk about Australian pilots there and, you know, Canadian bomber force over there. And, and uh, they will, you'll just... Something will germinate and that connection they had with the battlefield will, will resonate and bounce around there. But... You know, it, it, it's the difference between people who buy a Greatest Hits compilation and the people who buy the albums. Um, I'm an album buyer myself, but and I'm a book buyer. You know, as a YouTuber, you're a YouTuber, you know, you accept the fact that a lot of the people won't go and buy your book or buy your guest's book. They're just, they want a little quick um, both boost in the arm of history to the level that they, that they don't want more, though. They don't want, it's like, yeah, yeah too much now. <laughs> I don't need to know which battalion was behind that tree, you know. Speaking of YouTube, you have a fantastic channel, World War II TV. Um, I love it. I, I, it's, 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 as you say, it's got some... Uh, I love that you find new angles to common stories quite a bit of the time. You must enjoy doing that, producing that, uh, that channel on YouTube. I do. Um, and there are lots of fantastic channels. Um, but some, sometimes, because it's led by one person, it all becomes filtered through that person's nationality, their age, their... their whether they particularly like or don't like a general. So I, I will fashion an idea around with different historians over the course of a week, and they will offer o- almost opposing views on that. You know, one of my favourite weeks recently was Tank Destroyer Week, where the question was, what is a tank destroyer? Is it defined by doctrine, by vehicle design, by how you use it? And one of the best suggestions that, as the greatest tank destroyer of the war came from other historians. He said HMS Rodney, because HMS Rodney on D-Day in Normandy provided a barrage that knocked out 13 Panzer IVs or 21st Panzer or something, and so therefore it's a tank destroyer. And I like the idea that with YouTube, you can toss an idea around without necessarily coming to a conclusion. You've just had fun having the discussion. Um, and it just 
the more different views you have on a subject, the more you're likely to start being able to formulate your own opinion about something and challenge your own perceptions. Because we're very, we're all very entrenched. You know, Australians and New Zealanders and Canadians have their favourite general and their their anti-general. They, they don't normally want to be shifted out of that. But if you bring someone on with a side point of view, you know, maybe you'll, you'll unfold your arms and go, hang on, I didn't know that about him. You know, I mean, to give you an example, um, the, um, the South African commander in, in North Africa who didn't get on very well with the British, I found out from a South African presenter that he'd been interned as a family at the end of the Boer War. His family were interned in concentration camps. Well, that's going to make you grow up as a child with a little bit of a feeling about the British. Now, I'm now thinking, actually, hang on, in that case, he got on quite well, given his childhood. And that little different spin of putting it something is so important to, for me. That's where I get my kicks, is just someone bringing in a different point of view. So I use different historians each time. I've had done like 800 shows and I've used about 700 historians, including yourself. And it's the different points of view are just fantastic. Catnip to me. It's a, it's a great channel, so World War II TV, check it out on YouTube. Um, just finally, Woody, we've had a couple of days here, we've seen some great presentations. What's really stood out for you that you've seen from the audience since you've been here? Just thorough depth of knowledge, that you can, you can drop a little semi, semi-sarcastic joke about something that wouldn't land in most environments, but will land and because everyone get, knows that minute. And there's a whole, we have ways language that, that James and Al have developed over the last you know, three years of doing this, where you know, James is doing this, is look, we can look at it from the operational point of view, and Al's takes an eternity to get a question out, but if what, surely, but if they couldn't, hadn't they? we all love that, and it's like watching your band do your favourite um, favorite set of songs, and so the, 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 how informally formal this is, or formally informal is how I love this, you know, the the audience are very, very knowledgeable and very forgiving. And it's not... You do those conferences where people are... They're not asking a question or they're just making a comment of, of trying to get convey their knowledge. And, of course, in 1942, you don't get that much of that here. People are just... There's a relaxed, chilled atmosphere that I really love. Yeah, Paul makes some excellent points. Uh, so, Woody, thanks very much for that. It was always it's always a pleasure to catch up, and um, that was uh, you know one of the one of the presentations I enjoyed the most. Um, but just uh, just going through other things that were going on here, Legacy of War with Henry Sledge and David uh, Christopherson, uh, hosted by Al Murray. This was a really fascinating discussion. Henry Sledge and David Christopherson are both the children of very famous uh, veterans of the Second World War. Um, Eugene Sledge. Uh, and then David's father is a is a, a um, famous um, British commander, and um, yeah, so Eugene Sledge, who wrote one of my favourite books, and if you haven't read it, certainly check it out. With the old breed about the Marines fighting uh, in the later stages of the war on Peleliu and Okinawa, so quite exceptional. But it was great. I got to chat um, a lot with Henry Sledge after that uh, after that presentation, and what a lovely man. And uh, I, I think it's the thing that surprised me is I, I said this to Henry, that I think because his dad is so famous, everyone knows Eugene Sledge, they saw Joe Mazzello play him in the uh, miniseries The Pacific. Uh, he was the, effect, the main character, you know, the young bloke that went off and struggled with war. Um, it's, it's funny because I, I think we feel like we have some ownership of these people. If we've read their memoirs, we've seen them represented on TV, I think we in the public feel that we have, in some weird way, we have some sort of ownership to their story. So it was fascinating to speak to Henry, who was who just knew this man as his father. And he knew the story. The book was published um, when he was a younger man. And, and, and so he I think it was he was 16 when the book came out. But he 
firstly, he learned a lot about his dad because of the publication of that book. But he also had to go through the process of having a famous father. The book made his dad very famous. And from that moment onwards, everyone wanted to talk to Eugene Sledge about his experiences in the war, which was something he struggled with. Um, And so it's fascinating. This whole presentation, Legacy of War, was about how was it to grow up as the children of war heroes. And I think it was interesting that Henry and David's perspectives were quite different in a number of ways. Henry grew up in a very um, close family that, that, that knew this was an integral part of their story. David grew up in a very, I think, a very formal British family, and his father was 50 when he was born. So he said that his dad, although a great dad, was, uh, you know, was quite hands-off with him and 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 his dad was a you know retired officer from the second world war a war hero so you know i think he um he he had to, he had a few things that he had to deal with over his life but, but both men had wonderful respect for their father and it was you know quite a quite an open conversation they answered some very tough questions about what it meant for them and their relationship with their children and what it meant to have these famous veteran fathers so that was a a really a great uh, discussion um and then there were light-hearted moments as well. I have to say, there was a, a session in the in the evening called uh, Meistergeist, which is a German, a rough German translation for mastermind, where um, Al Murray, James Holland, Shane Taylor, who uh, you may know as uh, having played Doc Rowe in Band of Brothers, uh, Ben Wilbond, who played the captain in the the excellent funny series Ghosts, uh, he played a World War Two captain in that series. Uh, great historian Claire Mully and uh, John McManus, uh, my mate, who uh, who knows everything about there is to know about the American involvement, all participated in a, a quiz show, and that was a, a bit of a quiz game, which was uh, which was great fun and a bit more lighthearted than uh, than the rest of the conversations. It was important to have that light break, the sort of the comical break, because it is pretty intense. We are talking about some pretty nasty subjects here, and it was great to have that um, that that light break but uh, so that Meistergeist was a uh, was was good fun um also another one I enjoyed on the Friday was um, the Pacific War 1943 with uh, John McManus and Saul David just talking about the, the status of the war in the Pacific in 43 and I think 1943 in the Pacific is doubly overlooked I think the Pacific War gets overlooked compared to the European theatre. Uh, it's obviously just a lot more sexy to talk about D-Day and Nazis and, and Sicily and and Operation Market Garden. I, you know, the Battle of Britain. I mean, I, Market Garden, I don't know why it gets as much publicity as it does. It was a dumb idea, which didn't work very well. But anyway, that's a separate topic. We'll do a whole podcast on that. Um, but anything to do with the airborne dropping into Europe is exciting. And, you know, so the Pacific War gets overlooked at the best of times. But I think even when people do remember the Pacific War, they tend to remember 42 in terms of New Guinea, Guadalcanal, you know, the, the start of the Pacific War. They remember Pearl Harbor, obviously, at the end of 41. Um, and then they seem to jump forward to sort of 44, 45 when we start looking at, you know, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, um, Peleliu in some instances, you know, they, they sort of skip towards the end of the war. And then, of course, the atomic bombings and the and the surrender, the famous images of the surrender in Tokyo Bay. So 1943, I think, is a bit of the poor cousin in the story of the Pacific War. Um, so it was fantastic to hear what was going on in 1943 and the importance of those operations that were taking place in 43. And it was all about conflict between MacArthur and Nimitz and decisions about how the Allies were going to be involved or was it just going to be the Americans. So it was a fantastic talk. And both John McManus and Saul David are brilliant, engaging historians. So I could sit for hours and hear these guys talk. So that was a um, that was a, a really good 
um, discussion to sit in on as well. And actually, speaking of 43, let's talk about another um, conversation that took place about the Battle of Tarawa, which is, again, another overlooked action from 1943 and one of the most horrific actions the Marines ever took part in, the, the Battle of Tarawa. Uh, and that talk was uh, was conducted by someone I think you'll all know, a good friend of mine, uh, Alexandra Churchill, and she's a she's a very well known historian, and uh, and it was a great talk. Unusual for her to step outside her uh, standard World War One and perhaps World War Two in Europe framework to talk about Tarawa in '43, but gee, she did a good job. It was great to hear, and um, I had a chat with her afterwards. So let's hear from Alex Churchill about her discussion on Tarawa. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Alex Churchill, always great to catch up. Are you enjoying your time at We Have Ways? I am. Most of all, I, um, I'm delighted to have discovered that you have a pair of legs because we've only ever met online before. Um, and he's real, people. He's real. He's a complete human being. <laughs> well, so they say. <laughs> um, you did a great talk on Tarawa. In the Pacific, unexpected. I did not think that you'd be talking about Pacific War. Is this a, is this a hidden passion of yours? Uh, it, no, it is now. Um, so I was rabbit holing on something else for D Day, and I talked about it in the talk about how I ended up looking. I was looking at failures that had happened in theatres all over the world and how they didn't fail at D-Day because something new had been implemented. And this one for me is all about making sure you check the beach before you try and land on it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I was rabbit-holing on Tarawa. And then James was obviously like keen on 43 content. Um, so bang. I was exactly the same. It's how I ended up doing uh, army actions of Guadalcanal because it's the only part of the Guadalcanal <laughs> campaign that took place in 43. So exactly. we're, we're in the same boat there. But it's a hell of a story, Tara. I actually have a um, uh, Japanese Special Naval Landing Forces helmet that was oh, captured wow. by Americans at Tarawa. But just, that's a that's a horrifying story, isn't it? It is. And I spoke to a, a couple of American historians who'd done books on it. And um, they were saying that those Japanese troops that were on that island, they, they were damn good. They were crack troops. Like, I don't want to say they were, they were equivalent of the Navy SEALs or whatever, but that's like the reputationally, they were regarded as amazing. And like, I told a story in, um, it, it's so bloody, you think it's two miles long and half a mile wide, and you think, yeah, how bad can it be? It can be terrible. Uh, the last strong point on Tara was like a two-story cement blockhouse. And they've been trying to shell it, bomb it for days, and it wasn't working. And by that point, they've got the capability to land heavy machinery and stuff. So they land this bulldozer, and they push a big mountain of sand up to the bunker, and that blocks the entrance and the firing ports, which kills it off. They've still got to deal with the troops inside, so you get some marines scramble up the top, pour a load of 
gasoline in and then one grenade gets lobbed in 300 guys they pulled out all the remains of 300 guys the thing lit up like that's how bloody and savage it was i mean it was literally to the death i think they took about 150 prisoners i'm not sure i'm wounded but there were 4,000 sort of ish japanese and then the korean laborers as well so it is a bloodbath and the, the marines as well it was filmed and i actually had the the film running behind me because this lunatic called uh, kelly is his nickname um landed with a camera and filmed the whole damn thing and um yeah he just it was the first time americans had really had like a punch in the face in seeing what a war was it's like as close as you were going to get in 1943 to watching live news footage of a war um and you've got like this this one mother i remember so you're seeing this in newsreels and you're seeing dead marines floating in the water and you're knowing this is just a couple of weeks ago and you're knowing that your sons are in camp or your sons are in the marines and it's one woman from arkansas writes to one of the admirals and she just said you killed my boy at tarawa just horrific. I, I remember the famous footage of Japanese running out of a pillbox after a flamethrower has been sent in there and the Americans just cutting them down. It was unusual for that sort of, as you say, coverage yeah. during the Second World War. I think it's like, I think for all the propaganda and everything, and but you are in a fog of war at home. You have no idea what's going on over there. And and the reaction is they, they hear the casualty numbers and they see the dead marines and they see this, this pitiful looking strip of sand and no military leader is going to speak out at that time and go well there's a 4,000 foot airstrip there, airstrip there and we're planning to bounce all the way along to Tokyo and it's strategically that you're not going to tell people that in the middle of a war so they just keep stirring. I mean the guy just says commanding the marines war is war what else can he say he can't like explain the reasoning behind why they needed this pathetic strip of sand but yeah the, the visceral reaction of the public is that's something that's really unique about Tarawa. What I found here, since I've been speaking about the Pacific War, and um, it's a, a passion of mine, what went on in the Pacific, um, but in the UK, it's completely overshadowed, as you would expect, by the European theatre. How do you find that as a British historian? Do, do British people know enough about the Pacific War? No. This is so. If I tell you that I started my talk today by explaining how big the Pacific is and doing some distance snatches, like San Francisco to Manila is the same, it's a thousand miles more as the crow flies than London to Tokyo. Japan is still 2,000 miles from Manila. That's London to Jerusalem. Like, so I start, and you can see people in the crowd going, ooh, that's big. Yeah, yeah, it's big. And then you start explaining the difference, because you're saying, oh, so why do we go from Guadalcanal, which is nigh on Australia, to 1,100 miles away, to Tarawa, I was like, because they're two different campaigns. It's not the Pacific. You've got a South Pacific campaign going on, and you've got the jump across the Central Pacific as well. Two sides of the equator, two different campaigns. And you can see, like, obviously the people that have read on the Pacific War, but you can just see, like, the light bulbs going on in other people, like, going, oh, this is a bit more significant than I thought. Well, it's probably that great distance that the, and the, um, the fragmented nature of the fighting in the Pacific that adds to that lack of understanding about it, because it's easy to follow Band of Brothers and go D-Day to <laughs> well, that's why everyone says Pacific wasn't as good as Band of Brothers. Like, give the guys a break, man. The campaign is what it is. And like, it, and the thing is as well, you talk about the distances, but then you've got to tell people, like, if I go London to Jerusalem and I've forgotten my phone charger, I'm going to pass several outlets for a phone charger. If I've sailed from Wellington and I'm on my way to Tarawa, I have to take everything with me, everything. So for every one of the Marines they sent to Tarawa, they sent three tonnes of supplies. 
because unless you can turn a coconut into an artillery shell, there is nothing you can utilise other than palm logs are quite good. They're indestructible. If you want to build a shelter with palm logs, yay, you're, you're full on, but that's it. You get one tiny busted part on an Amtrak and you don't have enough Amtraks as it is and you need them vitally to get over that coral reef, you've got to go back to Wellington or back to Pearl Harbor to get another one. It's an absolute nightmare. And I think that trying to drill that home as well, I think is um, is quite hard but hopefully i managed it today yeah absolutely um over the two days of the festival we've seen lots of good presentations is there one that's stood out to you Ooh. apart from your own of course uh, yeah of course well mine was epic um i'm trying to think i merin and her maps she is uh, like she is an absolute i want to say superstar in the making but she's like so she's a superstar already in world war Two, like in this country because everyone's like yeah we know merin but she needs to be like more widely appreciated most definitely and she because she's she's epic and her work is like flawless and she took she took possibly like years of research and a, and a, and a full day seminar on maps and turned it into 45 minutes of like punch you in the face this is world war ii mapping and how it works so yeah that one really stood out for me always a pleasure to hear from alex churchill she's um yeah she's just fantastic she's got a lot of good things to say an incredible mind an incredible historian. So it was great to talk to her and catch up with her for a couple of drinks and just hear about all the great things going on in her life. She's been on the podcast before talking about her organisation, The Great War Group, and they are keen to get more Australian members on board. So if you're listening to this from Australia, consider joining The Great War Group. Um, they do a lot of uh, interesting things, a lot of online presentations that work well. I'm a member and it's great to be part of. So so check out The Great War Group. Other presentations that we saw. So we're, we're up to Saturday now, the, the second day which was sadly my last day. The, the, the event went on till Sunday, but I was only there till Saturday evening. Uh, a couple to highlight. Probably my favourite of the entire weekend was uh, on Saturday morning, which was Italy 1943, the morale crisis. And if you've uh, listened to J- anything James Holland has been doing, the, the great historian, you'll know that he's just written a book about Italy and he's focusing on the Italian campaign. Um, so Italy featured a lot in the, in the, uh, the festival weekend. Um, but also because most of what happened in Italy occurred in 1943. So it was a pivotal year for the Italian campaign. But this was interesting. And this is what I think is really important about these events is that there was a fantastic discussion between James Holland, John McManus, the American historian I've mentioned frequently, but also a historian that I wasn't aware of. I I, I knew of him, but I hadn't met him before called Jonathan Fennell. He's an Irish historian, but he's based at, um, he's based in London at Imperial College. Oh no, sorry, King's College in london um what a bloke i mean just a mind I, i'm so jealous of these intelligent people <laughs> I, I i i i find it so exciting just to sit and hear highly intelligent people talking about subjects they know really well but jonathan fennell was incredibly impressive he had a wonderful ability to cut through and make complicated subjects seem simple but also a huge focus on people in warfare and that's what this discussion was about i mean the, the topic was the morale crisis in 1943 which seems you know it sounds on the face of a little bit dry but it kind of morphed during the discussion they admitted at the end that they wandered off topic but i'm really glad that they did because it morphed into a discussion which basically you could summarize as what is the effect on human beings when they're thrust into a war and thrust in for a very long time and so what does morale actually mean? How do you keep an army working after two or three years in the field, after defeats, after after they've reached their breaking point and gone well beyond it? And not just the Allies, but the Germans as well and the Italians. You know, How were they uh, keeping their men in the line? How were they keeping them functioning? And it just became a huge 
discussion and a wonderful insight into the human aspects of being at war and the things like food and letters from families and and breaks from the front line that were essential in maintaining morale. But also they discussed a lot about the motivation for why men were fighting in the first place and things that we've heard about, such as I didn't want to let my mates down, which is a common one. But they also discussed the reasons that a lot of men chose not to fight, which is that they felt their family had already done enough for the war effort. Um, and the, one of the examples that stuck in my mind was they were talking about the South Africans who were withdrawn from the front line and sent home to have some leave at one stage during the fighting. And given the way that the South African um, force had been put together, it required to send them back to the front line at the end of their leave period. It required that the men effectively volunteered a second time to go back out. They couldn't send them out of South Africa without the men having volunteered to go. And they needed something like 70 or 80% of the men to, to volunteer to go again to maintain the size of the force. And only 23% of the men would volunteer. And, and it was a real crisis for South Africa. South Africa was effectively out of the war. It couldn't re-raise its division. And so as part of that, they surveyed the men to say, why are you not prepared to go back? You've done so well. You've been so brave and fought through some tough conflicts. Why are you not prepared to go and fight again? And the number one reason that they got was the men said, my family's done enough. It's time for someone else to, to shoulder the burden. And I thought that was a, you know, a wonderful insight that men would say that. They would say, we've done enough. You know, I've done my bit. We seem to always stereotype these people to say that they would have gone and gone back time and time again to defeat the Nazis. But no, that wasn't the case. And, and the one thing that came out of it is that sort of nationalistic feeling of I'm here to liberate Europe and defeat the Nazis. It was probably a factor, um, but men usually didn't say that it was because it seemed a bit weak and a bit, you know, airy-fairy. And um, so the men tended to say things like I'm here, you know, for my mates or my family, but they wouldn't generally say I'm here to defeat Hitler and liberate Europe because they thought it sounded a little bit soft. Um, so it was it was no doubt a motivating factor, but probably friends and family was a bigger motivating factor. So, or um, the job opportunity was a motivating factor that it was a chance for them to do a bit of travel and get some regular income in a you know in a regular well paying job. So that was a fascinating one. So Italy forty three, the morale crisis, one of my favorite favorite ones that I uh, that I enjoyed sitting on in on. Um, Tarot of forty three, I mentioned with Alex Churchill, that was great. Um, this was a very popular topic, and I'm not surprised why, but I was I knew it would be popular, but I didn't realize how popular it would be. Um, Katia Hoyer, that I've spoken to a few times and that hopefully we'll, we'll have on the podcast in the near future, has written a wonderful book called Beyond the Wall. And she was born and as a child grew up in the former East Germany. Uh, and now, of course, it's just Germany. There's no wall anymore. But she's written this fantastic account of the origins of the Berlin Wall and, the, and life behind the wall. Um, and as she said, it was a, a, it's a fascinating life experience to have a passport that shows your place of birth as a state which no longer exists. Uh, and so she, she was, it was absolutely packed. She spoke in the main tent, which I reckon had a thousand seats in it, and it was packed to the rafters, standing room only. And then afterwards, she did a book signing, and I saw her on her way to the book signing, and then I saw her again at the end of the book signing and chatted to her. And I reckon it was an hour and a half later. I think she'd been talking to people for an hour and a half and signing books. <laughs> she was pretty exhausted. But great to see that how much interest there is in this topic and in her ability to, to make it approachable to people. So that was absolutely fantastic to see. So I really enjoyed that presentation for Katja. So look out. We've been talking for quite a while about her coming on the podcast and we haven't quite made the schedules work, but we hopefully will very soon. Um, and you'll hear from Karcher firsthand about uh, about her wonderful book Beyond the Wall. And go out and buy it if you haven't, because it's a really great uh, it's a really great story. 
What else did I see on the Saturday? I saw so much good stuff. Oh, this was a great one. Um, Life and Death, 1935 to 45 uh, by John Tregoning. Now, John's an interesting bloke. I got to know him well over the weekend. I did not know him before the weekend, but we had lots of opportunities to catch up and he's a really good bloke. But the interesting thing is he's not a historian. He's a scientist and he's a, he's a medical scientist and he did a fantastic presentation about medical treatment uh, during the Second World War and 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 causes of death and, and efforts that the medical teams went to to prolong life and treating the wounded and how men fit back into society and prosthetics and the whole thing. It was a really fascinating discussion about an aspect we probably gloss over. We, we just assume that people were either killed or wounded and, and the war carried on. But for those families and for those individuals, obviously it had a huge effect on them and medical treatment was vital if they survived, it was my vital to um, to keeping them alive and, and to, to the rest of their, the, the outcomes of the rest of their life. So that was a fascinating one to hear from uh, from John. And um, I was fortunate to speak to him uh, after his talk just to hear a little bit more about it. So let's hear from John Tregoning now about life and death in the Second World War. John, great to talk to you. You did a really interesting presentation about a topic that is vitally important when we're talking about a battlefield but somewhat overlooked about medical treatment about death and destruction on the battlefield give us the quick 30 second summary of what you were talking about so uh let's talk about how the process of the rate of change of treatment was, was quick through the war things got much better much quicker the the biggest breakthrough was really penicillin and how that enabled people to not get infected and therefore could be triage better and recover and return to the battlefield quicker did we see during first world war second world war did we see rapid development in the treatment of wounded or was it fairly static throughout those conflicts it did change rapidly and and a lot of it was logistics like how did they get people off the battlefield so re-rolling the lsts into lst hospitals so once they dumped their troops in cargo they suddenly became hospital ships and shuttled things back and forth so a lot of it was about getting people off the field quicker and you mentioned some pretty incredible statistics. I won't ask you to remember them all, but there was one that struck me that you said for every six Americans wounded, uh, only one of them didn't get back on the field of battle. Do I have that correct? Yeah, yes. So for every six wounded, one would die, four would be back on the field of battle, and one within 72 hours. That's really quite extraordinary. Is that a reflection of processes? Is that a reflection of technology? Why, how did they get so good at, at recycling people back onto the field of battle? Yeah, processes, um, The just caring more actually was really important, the, the, the putting the resources into it because they realised that, that, that manpower was a, a finite resource as much as anything else and therefore it's economic sense as much as anything else. You're a scientist, not a historian. How has it been for you these last couple of days hanging out with a bunch of historians and, and hearing their perspectives on, uh, on the Second World War? It's been fascinating. The, uh, the interplay between the, kind of the different historians has been really interesting to watch as an outsider and the, you know, the, 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 the kind of friendships and the slight subtle rivalries has been very interesting. It kind of mirrors what I would see in my own field, but it's, it's, it's nice to be so, so far apart from it you could just watch and laugh. What's the most interesting presentation you've seen in the time you've been here? So there was a brilliant one on the morale crisis uh, about how the the Axis and the Allies were managing the morale of their troops. You know, and 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 and, and on both sides, the morale was really important, and like the link to home and values was seen as, as very important to keep people going. Yeah, great stuff from John. It was a really excellent presentation. I'm sure he'll be back next year doing something uh, just as interesting. Really great, uh, great stuff from John. Um, Another fascinating uh, discussion that I heard. One of the good things about this, I have to say, and I'm fortunate that as a presenter, I was allowed to you know, go and mingle with all the other presenters. It was great, and I really enjoyed doing that. 
But probably the best thing that I thought was it's always good to catch up with someone after you've seen their presentation and talk to them. But what I found is I got to know people on a personal level really well. You know, we chatted, we caught up for hours at a time. You'd have meals together and beers and really get to know them sort of behind the scenes. And then it would be their turn to go and talk. And so you go and sit in the audience and hear someone that you had been talking to for the last couple of days presenting their topic that they're an expert on. And that was actually really quite wonderful. And this was a good example. There was a a presentation called Tank, which was a discussion between a a, a really wonderful American chap who now lives in the UK called uh, Waitman Bourne. And uh, someone you, if you're British, you probably know, which is uh, Hamish de Bretton Gordon. Um, Both... um, brilliant historians and both former tank commanders and so they simply did a presentation called tank about what it about during the second world war what it was like to be part of a tank crew and that was quite extraordinary um and they related it to their own experiences in later wars so uh so waitman had served in uh, in iraq uh, in 2003 and uh, hamish had served you know constantly since the first gulf war uh, in all sorts of sorts of uh, areas of operation so fascinating to hear their their insights and the thing that struck me is how little it's changed the role of the tank has not really changed the technology has advanced somewhat but the basic idea is still exactly the same you put people in this metal beast and you send them into the front line and you know the 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 age-old balance between firepower mobility and protection for the crew and um as as white pointed out it's a it's a zero-sum game you um if you if you boost one you lose the others so um yeah a, a, just a really fascinating talk about life in a tank in the second world war their personal experiences with being tank commanders in in future you know in, in in subsequent generations but they also then of course as many people did tied it back to what's going on in ukraine at the moment and the use of tanks in ukraine which has been obviously a dominant part of the fighting and the Russians have lost an extraordinary number of tanks and the Western allies have been sending tanks over to support Ukraine. So that was a really great discussion and um, and, and I look forward to hearing more from both of those gentlemen uh, in future uh, future events. But that was a really, a, a really good one, um, which I really enjoyed. And I think that was about the end of the ones I saw, sadly, because I had to hit the road. Um, another shout out to Robert Lyman, who's a fantastic historian. Oh no, that's the, sorry, that was the other one that I saw. That was the last one that I saw. There was an extra one, bonus one that I saw just before I left. And this was great. Uh, this was Robert Lyman, who's a fantastic historian that I got to know really well. So there'll be, again, I hope they'll have him on the podcast very soon. Hopefully I'll have all these people on the podcast because they were brilliant and I'd love to bring them to you. So look out for that in the future. I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get all these people on the podcast to talk about the same topics they discussed at the We Have Ways Festival, but but many others as well. So, um, yeah, the one I saw with Robert Lyman was From Victory to, to Defeat. Yes, I said that correctly. From Victory to Defeat, the British Army from 1918 to 1940. Now, as soon as I saw 1918, I um, I jumped all over it because it was probably the only First World War content in the in what was a Second World War festival. But what a discussion. And this was Robert Lyman and um, Lord Richard Dannett have written a great book called From Victory to Defeat about how how quickly the British Army learnt what it needed to do to win a war during the First World War. So the distinction between the British Army in 1916 and what it was doing in 1918, effectively with the same commanders, we shouldn't forget if we want to talk about the terrible generals of the First World War, remember that the same guys who had you know, overseen disaster in 1916 led to a fantastic victory in 1918, so they must have done a good job somewhere. Um, but they learnt those lessons very, very quickly, and the British Army by the end of the First World War was a fantastic fighting force, and I'm including the Commonwealth countries in here as well, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, 
Canada, etc. The British Army and its its uh, its extra parts were a fantastic fighting force by 1918, and they defeated the Germans soundly in the field. Don't believe anyone that tells you the stabbed in the back garbage. The, the, the German army was stabbed in the front. They were absolutely defeated on the on the field of battle in the First World War in 1918. And this talk was about how in a very short period of time between 1918 and 1940, the British army forgot all of those lessons and basically didn't spend enough money on defence, pared back the army to the bare minimum. And then by the time the Second World War rolled around, and don't forget the Nazis have been in power since you know well, 1933, so there, were, there, there was plenty of time for the British Army to be getting ready for, for a potential war, but they basically ignored the, the lessons of 1918. That was what um, Robert Lyman and uh, Richard Dannett argued in this presentation and in their book, that we forgot those lessons, that Britain forgot what it was there to do, and therefore by the time um, 1940 rolled around, 1939, 1940, that the British Army was not prepared to fight a war and that you know obviously led to effective humiliation at Dunkirk even though we managed to get the army away it was a bit of a humiliation that they were so soundly thrashed by the Germans Battle of Britain you know and onwards and it took a long time for the British army to relearn those lessons of the First World War and of course they did and all credit to the Brits and the Allies in general that they relearned these lessons but it took longer than it probably should have because they'd forgotten the lessons of 1918 so that was a fantastic discussion and Robert Lyman's written some Brilliant book, so look out for him. And again, someone hopefully we'll have on the podcast soon. Uh, that was also uh, hosted by um, Peter Caddick Adams. He was the the host of that discussion. He's a wonderful historian, someone I know, and was great to catch up with again. Um, and again, look out for him on the podcast. So that was the last formal presentation I saw, but there was a bit more of an informal one, and this was probably the flagship presentation of the entire conference. If there were two super big events of the of the weekend the first one was probably sir anthony beaver talking about stalingrad i don't want to get i don't want to pick and choose here and annoy people but that was a big one he's a big name and that was a very well subscribed uh talk as i said sadly on at the same time as my talk so i think it <laughs> quite reasonably drew a few people away um but that's okay i'm happy enough with that but um this one was again this was probably the flagship um, presentation, which was afflicted why we are obsessed with the Second World War. And that was uh, hosted by James Holland and, and Al Murray, but also was attended by Dermot O'Leary and, drumroll, James May from Top Gear fame and everything else that James May has done. Um, and I briefly chatted to him <laughs> before he went on. Um, good bloke, um, an absolute superstar. In, over here in the UK, I don't, perhaps in Australia we don't quite realise, but over here in the UK, oh my God, he is a huge celebrity and everyone was awestruck that he was there including all of the historians that are mini celebrities in their own right uh so it was great it was really great to have james may involved in this festival because if you've seen any of the work that he does you know that he is someone who is um very interested with the second world war in particular and air power he's a pilot um you know he he is very knowledgeable and a very funny bloke and and i caught um it was on at the same time as victory to defeat so i I scrambled over there after after I'd heard uh, Robert Lyman and Richard Dannett talking. And, yeah, I mean, I see why James was there. He's a very funny bloke. He's very smart, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. It was probably, you know, more on the lightweight side of the of the festival. There was, I don't think there was any, um, you know, I don't think we, we solved any great mysteries of history during that presentation, but it was a good entertainment aspect of the weekend and it, you know it was a good a good discussion and lots of good question and answers from from the public and James is a real a real star and it was great to have him there and uh, and he said some 
some he added some fascinating points of view to the discussion and it is a discussion that we should ask you know we should we should ask this question of ourselves why are we so obsessed with the second world war and again over here in the uk everyone is obsessed with the second world war if you're into history you're into the second world war and it was something i noticed even in the audience about the number of young people there there was a lot of mostly young men but aged in their 20s and 30s that were there as well so there is a huge interest in the second world war uh, over here in the uk as was reflected at the festival and indeed in the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast, which is hugely popular uh, and you should certainly check it out. So that was my overview of the weekend. It was a really great one. I just wanted to get some thoughts down while they were still fresh in my mind. But if you are going to be in the UK in 2024, I assume it'll be about this time again, September, definitely think about getting tickets to that festival. And there were some people that I chatted to from Australia and New Zealand who'd come over, not specifically for the festival, but it had been a key reason for coming at the time that they did so they were here on a trip to the to the uk uh to uh to include the we have ways festival uh in their travel plan so if you're into world war ii i definitely recommend that you uh you consider doing that next year uh, and uh, i know we've got a lot of listeners in the in the uk as well so i'm sure uh if you're in the uk and it's a little bit bit, bit more accessible do yourself a favor and head out there check out the we have ways of making you talk podcast which is a good laugh and also some fantastic information about the Second World War. Keep listening to this podcast where we're going to have a lot of the historians who spoke at the festival. They're going to be coming on in the, in the coming weeks, so so look out for them. And if you do go to the festival next year, I will certainly be there, so please come up and say hi. It's always great to talk to people and meet the people that are listening to the podcast. So thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.